Welcome to Kando Insider on ThinkTech Hawaii. Aloha, everybody. I'm your host, Attorney Nalan. Join me today uh, is our guest architect, Mr. Dennis Olmsted, licensed uh, architect with a lot of industry experience uh, on condo projects in Hawaii. Uh, he's with Lalima Asset Management. Dennis worked as an independent design builder for 25 years and construction manager for 13 years. He's been involved in 27 different plumbing drain, waste and windpipe system replacement projects and countless other types of improvement projects in Honolulu. Uh, we're very fortunate to have him available today for a discussion on the challenges faced by condominium associations in budgeting and funding reserves in the current inflation economy and some strategies uh, to cope with the current situation and we can gain his knowledge and his uh, you know, lessons learned based on his experience working with all these major projects in Hawaii. Uh, aloha, welcome, Dennis. Thank you for having me. So glad you can join us today. Uh, so Dennis, uh, you know, as we all understand, you know, now we're dealing with inflation, higher borrowing costs, and also there's the supply chain shortages issues that makes every repair project, any small or big ones, much more expensive. So can you share with us uh, some of the special challenges faced by condominium associations today with regards to budget and reserves? Yeah, there's, there's a couple of things here we can share. Um, you know, an operating budget is really kind of that that day to day type of thing, and so you know, inflation can can affect that because basically that's the cost of doing business, and 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 everybody in Hawaii kind of has to deal with these cost of living type of increases. So it's kind of a commonplace. So budgeting is is sort of a kind of a standard process. It's not too difficult to understand, but inflationary times we do have to. Uh, make adjustments for those particular, you know, increases. Uh, but when, when when I look at an operating budget, and we're going to be talking a lot today about older buildings today, more so than newer buildings. And when I look at one of uh, an older building's operating budget, budget, I like to look at uh, it from a perspective. Is the budget forward facing or is it basically the same old, same old? Because there's a lot of uh, important decisions that uh, associations have to make because they're going to have to line their building up for the future. And as far as, you know, reserve studies are concerned, you know, inflation, if, you know, your actual cash values that you might have in the bank will say, you know, inflation is going to reduce your buying power, which is not going in the right direction. And we know costs are increasing. So there's, there's a, sort of a differential going in another in different directions from each other. Uh, but what's really important is 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 for the people who prepare the reserve studies, who you know, who who the associations really rely upon for that future concern is that inflationary times um, construction costs do get out of control, and that there'll be certain areas of construction, uh, like for example, metals may go up because there might be a shortage of metals and so forth, and like you mentioned, supply chain issues and so forth. So. The people who prepare these reserve studies really have to dig in and stay on top of construction costs or that reality gap between what a reserve study says and the actual cost of construction uh, can get get you know quite there very quickly. Yeah, so I mean we do have a lot of old buildings in town. You know, so what are the most uh, you know ten name top ten most expensive repair projects? 
you know, associations should plan ahead to be prepared for? Okay, sure. We, we've got, um, and there, there's sort of like three groups that I see for these aging buildings. It's, uh, we've got uh, the replacement of the plumbing waste system. That's that's probably the number one expensive one. Uh, then we then looking at some of the life safety issues. We we've got sprinkler systems, uh, fire alarm systems. Uh, as the buildings age, we've got more concrete spalling issues to deal with. Uh, the, as the building gets older, there's components that start giving out. Like for example, windows have reached the end of their use of life lifespan, so they need to be replaced. And a fair amount of waterproofing uh, issues are in Hawaii because we've got a lot of parking issues. Uh, we've got rec decks and things like that. So waterproofing becomes an issue. Some of the not so big ticket items are, you know, you have to replace your roofing every so often. You have to paint your building every so often. Uh, modernizing elevators is one of the things, you know, that you have to keep up with. And a few things for the future is that, uh, you know, we're, we're, we need more electrical uh, devices today to, to operate in our society. So we, have, uh, we, a lot of old buildings had old services that, that are basically undersized for the future. So upgrading service sizes is one of those. Along with that issue, we've got some, maybe some climate change issues and people in Hawaii may want to start adding more air conditioning to the building. So that kind of relates to the upgrading of the electrical system. And then, and, and then as time goes along here, um, you know, Hawaii is a special case. So there's going to be um, electrical and water type of efficiencies. So there's going to say we were going to be careful how we use things. We don't want to waste things. So there, there's regulations starting to be prepared to manage those type of, um, you know, parts of, of, of a building's usage. I mean, I guess every association is faced with a dilemma that, you know, there are all these items that need to be repaired, but limited funding, right? So if they have to prioritize uh, all these major items, uh, is there like a best practice or a recommendation on how, you know, how they should prioritize on this kind of repairs? What can they do to help them save money in the long run? Well, you know, you know, a lot of these associations are, are looking at, we'll say, a, a fairly big cost. And, it, and it's going to feel very insurmountable. But when, when we deal with stuff like that, we basically kind of uh, say an analogy of how to deal with that something like that is, you know, people climb Mount Everest, for example. Now, you know, they don't just start at the bottom and keep going until they get to the top. You know, that what they do is they plan a route and then they'll climb the mountain a little portion at a time. And associations can do that same kind of thing. So for an age building, I'd say you want to create like a five year five to 10 year improvement plan and have the, you know, the discipline to stick to it, you know, and if you can do that over that period of time, you, you know, for some associations based upon you know the size of the buildings, they can save millions of dollars. And that's, that's where the big savings is. It doesn't come from uh, uh, comparing one contractor pricing to another. And you might save a little bit of money there, but the big money, uh, is in, in different aspects of actually getting things done. So the second thing I would recommend is start now. The cost of construction in Hawaii is going up every year, so it's it's only going to get worse. So that's that can result in millions as well. Um, and, and the third thing I would say um, is, is to, when you're looking at these projects, look for ways to combine projects. So it's the kind of the the, the idea of getting, you know, you, you can do two things at once and that, and when you're doing that, you have opportunities to save. 
And, and then I'd say that the overall sort of guiding principle of all of this is don't stop until you're done. And what we've seen actually in cases where people have had multi-scope projects and they've completed them, it's actually re-energized these buildings and it's really really been a, 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 a sort of a, uh, we'll say a new birth for that building and everybody gets excited about it and, and people start actually accelerating the remodeling projects and so forth. So it's sort of that seed and then it, and then it takes off from there. Great. Yeah, so for the information of our audience, there is a pending bill that's about to become law. It's currently in road to the governor for review and signature. That's SB, uh, that's eight, uh, 855. So basically, this new law, once it passed, it will, uh, you know, mandate associations to include a summary uh, with further details in the budget about uh, the estimated cost of fire safety equipment or installations that would meet the requirements of the county, uh, you know, and then provide that the, the reserve study, I mean, forecast a loan or special assessment to fund life safety components or installations. You also just got to disclose potential uh, the balance of the total replacement reserve funds of your association as of the date of the budget. Um, and then basically, of course, we are all aware now there's the requirement that the, the reserve study, uh, if it's not prepared by independent reserve study preparer, now it needs to be reviewed by an independent reserve study preparer, um, not less than every three years. Um, uh, the new law will allow managing agent with industry pre uh, reserve study designations uh, to uh, have the ability to do this kind of study um, and also uh, clarify there's not going to be conflict interests. So definitely there will be more transparency uh, as far as the association's budget and also sort of force association board to plan ahead if your building happens to be one of those 309 buildings that need to pass the fire safety evaluation or install a sprinkler, then you need to really think ahead. Um, and um, well, let's change topic a little bit because I, you know, I represent condominium and community associations. I help my clients review contracts all the time. And uh, it's not uncommon, you know, for associations, even if they have assigned, let's just say, a bid or proposal from a vendor, that's usually after they receive multiple bids, they picked one, they signed it with it. But then there's always time you know, to hash out the further details of the contract. It needs a little bit of time to paper the deal. And it's not uncommon during this time period, you know, maybe the vendor is going to come back saying, you know, hey, because of this shortage issue or some vendor supplier down the chain, you know, uh, they hike the price of the material or certain equipment. Now we have to raise the price. Uh, or, you know, even after the contract is signed, you know, of course, there's change order, as we are all familiar in the in construction industry, the vendors trying to increase price on that. Uh, so is there any tips for associations and uh, legal counsel for associations to uh, in this kind of situation? You know, how do you tell whether the vendor's request or ask is justified or not? Are there any negotiation tips you can suggest today? Yeah, so basically in our industry, uh, we're, we're really, uh, you know, once you get your, your, say, your documents signed and you've got an agreement in place, everything kind of works off of a change order from, from that point forward. Uh, some people get themselves in trouble and then they, they want to, they jump the gun and they start making promises without actual, you know, you know, completed contract amounts. And then people start saying, well, you said this and now it's not that, that type of thing. And, 
and that's to be avoided. You know, we we need we don't want to jump the gun, and I know people are you know anxious to get started on things. But when it comes to you know, really being able to control things properly, we have to do it in a proper fashion. So change orders are the way we go about doing that. So there are basically kind of we'll say change, there's two change orders sort of areas where they come out of. One is one is out of when you're working on a project in an existing building. So that set of change orders is going to be something different than a set of change orders that comes out of a building that's brand new. So if we're, if, if we, we're looking at a, a building that where you're working inside an existing building, like we'll be doing in many uh, condo association buildings, basically these change orders will come up because something wasn't built the way the old plan said it was. That's usually what will, uh, you know, what will trigger a change order in that process. And, and that's, that's something where uh, it, it's unavoidable uh, because, uh, you know, it got built differently. A lot of things are behind walls, so you can't actually predetermine this and catch those kind of, those, you know, kind of mistakes. And as far as, you know, controlling cost on something like that, uh, the, the, the contracting world is basically being controlled by, you know, material suppliers. And we... You know, and we on the islands are really susceptible to uh, cost increases because we've got to import everything from the mainland uh, to get things here. So we, we're our costs of, of these change orders tend to be, uh, you know, fairly significant because they're out of the norm. So it's it's hard to hard to predict when those those say cost escalations are going to happen. We've seen in the last couple of years, we've seen a number of. of uh, uh, we'll say metal increases for plumbing pipes, and it can go up twenty five percent at a time, and that's and and you just not you can't do anything about that. The the the, the uh, change orders that exist in new buildings, there's a um, a kind of a relationship between the ability of somebody that will say the designers to develop what I call a constructible set of plans now when when designers draw plans it's like why well, you, you can draw it but can you build it and then on the other side of the this this we'll say the fence is when the builder's saying uh, you know i can't build this or i don't know how to build this or so from a contractor standpoint uh we're looking we want to look for you know contractors who have good quality control and, and experience in that kind of project and when you work with those people that have that experience, then what you're doing is you're eliminating, eliminating some of the unknowns from somebody who says, well, have you ever built an airport? And you say, no, well, then, well, somebody's going to, it's never going to get that right. So you kind of look for those experienced people in those particular areas, you know, to, to protect yourself from cost uh, increases. So, Dennis, you've advised more than 40 Honolulu condominium associations on their options for passing the city's fire life safety evaluation ordinance. Can you share with us uh, like the steps in the overall working process and estimated you know, average price tax for those projects? Sure, I can I can kind of sort of give you kind of an overall on this. So there's two, there's two options for passing. The first option is to install a set of sprinkler systems throughout the building. So that's that's the most expensive of the fixes, we'll say, that's related to the LSEs. And a lot of these buildings um, have, we'll call it antiquated fire alarm systems, and, the, and fire alarm systems will also have to be upgraded in option number one as well, because 
the building code actually is going to say that. Now, the life safety evaluation is a set of, uh, we'll say, uh, of issues to be resolved. It's not part of the building code. So when you when you deal with a, a sprinkler system, you still have to put that in for a building permit. But when you're doing that, you, the, the sprinkler system now has to talk to the fire alarm system and the old technologies don't talk to new technologies. So by default, the sprinkler system in most cases will have to come with a you know a set of a, uh, of a fire alarm system. And so that's option number one. Option number two is that the, the evaluation has uh, listed all the improvements in a building that will make the building safer, but it doesn't require a sprinkler system. And so when you're dealing with one building from the next, it's hard to uh, evaluate costs because every building is going to have a little different situation because they don't have, um, they might not have this, have to make this improvement, but they have to make another improvement. But on a, on a basic level, uh, you know, when we're talking about costs on something like this today, you know, we talk about costs today, but the reality is when I pick a number today, we're really talking about something two years from now, three years from now, four years from now. So, you know, people tend to remember these numbers in the moment today. And then, then two years later, you said this and you said that. So you got to be careful in your budgeting numbers. But say for the next couple of years, um, say maybe to the beginning of uh, 2025, I'd say a budgeting for a sprinkler system, maybe it's $20,000 a unit. Uh, for a fire alarm, it might be like $10,000 a unit. That will get you into the ballpark. And, and the biggest variables in those two parts of the LSE are with the, uh, we'll call the infrastructure or the equipment or the fire alarm equipment. We have to house this equipment in a fire protected room. Does the association have the space available to build this room? Can we borrow that space from someplace else? And so that's going to be, say, the cost variable that'll come into play. Uh, it's pretty pretty uh, consistent to be able to um, accurately uh, cost out how many you know you know sprinkler heads are going to go in each unit and so forth. So that's a fairly easy thing to estimate, but it comes comes into a little bit more difficulty when you're dealing with the infrastructure. So on the option, on option number two, uh, the, what we've seen a lot of issues with that um, that seem to be reoccurring issues. So the two biggest cost figures there are, again, the fire alarm system, which, is, which has to be, a, a, we'll say most of them have to be uh, upgraded to a new code, uh, we'll say code qualified standard. And then there's, a, there's a, another, uh, We'll call it issue or, or element in, in the the LSE, and it's called vertical penetrations, and that's where uh, pipes are traveling vertically through the floors, and there's a little gap that's that's uh, between the pipe and the actual concrete floor that's left open, and that's that's uh, uh, that little gap has to be um, we'll call it fire stop with the proper caulking, which has to be actually fire rated caulking and so forth. So those are the two biggest elements. Um, with something like that, um, there, there's a fairly high cost with dealing with that these little little spaces because uh, for these vertical penetrations because you have to remove toilet fixtures and sinks and you have to open up walls and then you have to do the actual fire stopping work. Then you got to put the drywall back, finish that, paint that, put the the toilet fixtures or the cabinets back together again just to access those little little spaces. So in a in a 
in a one bedroom, well, I shouldn't say one bedroom, it's one bath, one kitchen unit, um, you can probably budget about $4,000 for that particular unit. And so if you added another bathroom uh, to something like that, you should probably add another maybe $2,500 for, for another bathroom. So there's lots of two bathroom and then obviously one kitchen units, but that's that's kind of gives you a ballpark idea of what it would be for uh, that. And then there'll be some other little issues that are related to door closures, uh, door the types of doors. Sometimes uh, a, a building will have to replace um, a, a, the entryway doors to become fire rated doors. And that, that can be in a big building, that can be a, a, if you've got sort of a, called ventilated or louvered doors you'd have to put in a solid core door and that can be fairly expensive as well so i could imagine like uh, most of these buildings they probably you know because the law was passed because of the marco polo fire and not a lot of the associations plan ahead to have enough money in their reserves for this uh, um you know new law required um improvement so um you know, among those projects you worked on, you know, there must be associations who did well, they were successfully or smoothly, you know, accomplish uh, that project, at least started, as you said, that may be a two or three year project. And there may also be projects where they were struggling financially with that, maybe with loans or with special assessment. Uh, can you share with us, uh, you know, your experience on, you know, lessons learned from you know, your work with those projects for those ones that did it successfully smoothly, what they did right. And for those ones that went wrong, you know, what lessons, what mistakes we can learn from there? Well, you know, what, what happens is um, in, in this sort of construction industry, there's a lot of work that gets done before, you know, the construction actually starts. So there's, there's a, a lot of back and forth with, amongst the designers and, 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 what it often comes down to is the, the individual uh, people, or not, I shouldn't say individual people, but the, the folks that are actually what scoping the project and setting expectations. And so basically what that means is, did the, the original designers get to the heart of the actual project? Or, or did they get, we'll say, 75% of the way there and then assumed, uh, say, another 25%. And then once, once you have, say, properly scoped the project and set the expectations for the ownership, pretty much everything after that goes right. There might be the unexpected thing, but it's the scoping of the project where people fail to get that properly defined and in everybody's mind what's going to happen. So when 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 we have a smooth project, that's exactly what happens is, has happened in the, in, in the process is that somebody knew what was going to happen, explained what was going to happen, and, and worked through the process uh, through the design phase and through the construction phase to make sure that that actually happened. So it's that the scoping knowledge of the people involved really makes the difference. So there's something that, from an association standpoint, Basically, they've got to look for people that have experience in that kind of work. When you see scoping, does that mean the professional has to be on site, you know, really go through every corner they should supposedly visit the building to be familiar with the project enough to know what this building, what problems they have, and then provide a more accurate 
uh, budget or like a quote bid on the project cost? Uh, is that what scoping means in your um, yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of a lot of that is is that what happens in the industry is is that designers are challenged for time, right? And yes, and, and can we go out to the site and can we spend a day or two looking around? And, and getting, you know, just getting an idea and then going back again and then going back again. So that's what I would I mean see. By, by scoping the project. Did you really go far enough? You're, you're going to have to take a look at things and people do that. But how many times do you go back so that you really answer the questions? And then when, when you're in the design phase, after you understand the scope of work, then you can bring, we'll say that, that set of plans, we'll call it up to what I call constructability levels, where you say, okay, I understand what this is happening in this building. There's this situation over here. Now we're going to deal with it in that way. And a lot of that, a lot of these sort of things sort of, I won't say fall between the cracks. It, it's more like they just sort of bypass the issue and, and sort of think that it's somewhere down the line, something might get taken care of. And then, and then the owners are then the, the ones that are sort of faced with the, the economic repercussions of something like that. I see. Thank you. Yeah. So, well, let's change, let's switch our role a little bit. Uh, assume that I'm a potential, you know, home buyer. I'm interested in buying into a condo unit. As we all know, uh, if you enter into a residential, um, you know, real property purchase transaction in Hawaii as part of the purchase contract that will give access through the seller's disclosure. If there's a condo project, the seller is supposed to give, you know, a copy of the condo projects, including association's budget, reserve study, most current financial statement, insurance summary, uh, submitting minutes and, you know, project documents to the buyer. So the buyer actually will have before escrow closing, they will have, um, you know, a copy of these condo documents, including the association's guest financial picture. Um, so um, do you have any advice as to, you know, for a purchaser, you know, looking at these documents, if I don't have a CPA degree, you know, how do I tell if uh, there are some alarming signals that this project, if I buy into it, I may be hit with a special assessment or, like, you know, be stuck with a situation, they will hike the maintenance fees or do special or borrow heavily for their, um, you know, basically what kind of, what are the key areas I should look for and what are the alarming signals I should look for? Well, uh, <clears throat> when you have this information, uh, basically what you're looking at is, is this cost information is really related mostly to the building itself. Yes. So there, there might there might be you know in in a budget that you'd be looking at well it's like what what is our water bill or what you know what is our landscaping issues and so forth so those those issues really don't really aren't really something that you'd be concerned with what you're what you're looking for is that that just what you said that kind of that extra high cost item that might show up that wasn't planned for before, and you didn't know about it before buying the property so. Your your best bet is is to start looking at the reserve study, because that's the actual listing where the where they've got these components listed, and then there's a value associated with those list, listings. Now, you as a layman may not know you know what what is the cost of a or a window replacement. So that number in that in that particular. Um, line listing won't necessarily be relevant to a project that maybe two years from now they're thinking about starting. Say and, and they say, "Hey, uh, we're going to re redo the windows, but you know we've only got 
$500,000 or whatever that number might be there, and this is a million-dollar project. So <clears throat> that part of it is that is the, we'll say, the area where you almost need somebody with, say, construction background. It's not really a CPA background. It's say, it, are these numbers realistic? You know, to have that person who's got, who operates in the construction industry and knows real, real numbers, you can say, are those numbers realistic? Now, that's, you know, can you get to access to that? You know, do you know people that can do that? Will people cooperate with you and, and do things like that, give you that kind of information? That that can be difficult at times, but that's kind of the about the only way that a layman can actually figure out what's going to happen in the future. Now, the one thing about these 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 projects, you know, we call them capital improvement projects. Basically, it's not a, a project that actually gets listed in the reserve study. So, a CIP project is not something that you try to fund through a maintenance. Uh, it was through a cash through cash reserves. So the CIP projects are actually projects outside of the reserve, and so you need to get that information from the association. Say, are you thinking about doing something like this in the future? I'm looking at this number right here for these windows. Or when are you planning on doing the window replacement? It would be these those type of things, uh, and then there, like I said, you won't see everything listed because a CIP project doesn't get listed in the reserve study. So you've got to somehow analyze the age of the building and what are those particular elements that might be coming to the end of their useful lifespan. So it's, it's not easy. I see. Yeah, and also I think under the current reserve law, you know, anything cheaper than like $10,000, they tend to be lumped together. Right? It's only those big ticket items get a separate line item on that reserve study. Uh, but for a condo project, uh, there is one good document, uh, you know, potential buyer should look for that is the form RR105C, uh, um, uh, which is uh, a project information form uh, required as part of the, you know, disclosure document we just mentioned for residential real property transaction in Hawaii as well. Uh, you know, in this form, uh, usually the association's managing agents, they need to fill out complete, sort of certify the accuracy. Uh, there's one, uh, you know, component they did ask, are there any major repairs required or planned within the next 12 months with respect to common elements? And, you know, among these, there are about like 20 items listed there. They're, those are all like the, the most expensive ones we just mentioned today. The top 10 are definitely there. So they need to check a box there or not. So definitely as suggested by Dennis, if you know anybody um, like him, like a professional, this is the time you use your friendship, like take your friend to lunch or something, help, like have that professional have you take a look and maybe, you know, join for the site inspection, home inspection process. Um, yeah, we covered a lot today uh, and we have limited time left. Uh, let's, I think it's a good time for us to wrap up. So um, really, I think there are, you know, everybody understand the challenges. The, you know, the key, the key is to how do we come up with strategies to uh, sort of uh, overcome the challenges or deal with that. So, uh, you know, maybe you can give us uh, like a wrap up for today's discussion. Um, you know, share with us some of your, you know, suggestions they should consider, a strategy they should take. Sure. So um, with aged buildings, uh, we, we, we design buildings basically from World War II. There was a building boom. 
And we started building buildings differently because we had to meet a demand. So basically, we started building uh, building them cheaper. And, and consequently, that has never changed since then. So when we design a building today, a building uh, is designed to last for 80 to 90 years. That's it's much like much like people. So um, when we look at an aging building, we have to say, well, is this middle age or is this advanced age and so forth? So when when these aging buildings are faced with these issues, it's it's not so much, you know, even though, you know, the life safety comes into play, they're also aging at the same time. So there's actually two things going on at once. And that and that can often create creates this mountain of, of that's facing them, you know, to deal with these kind of situations. So the acceptance of the idea that we have to do this work is the first thing that, that has to you know, be accomplished. It's not about what are our options, what can we do, what can we do type of thing. This is if you need a new knee, you need a new knee and you got to get that replaced. And it's the same thing with the building when it's aged. And if a building's 50 years old and you need to replace those pipes, you need to replace those pipes or whatever that, that might be. And it's that acceptance factor of, of understanding that you, people just happen to be at this point in time in these buildings dealing with this situation for the very first time in Hawaii. Because this, is, this has never occurred before where these buildings got to a point where they were old enough where these things had to actually happen and components give out after about 40 years. And a lot of these buildings are in that stage when things have to be replaced. So the acceptance factor is key and then to have a 10-year plan five or maybe for you know say smaller buildings maybe a five-year plan but in that type of range where you're addressing these issues and and continuing forward with this um it's it's not going to be uh the answer is not going to be lying trying to figure out how much cheaper we can actually get things done it's about actually getting things done so that you actually get it done cheaper sooner than actually, you know, looking for ways to skin the cat a different way. That's so true. I think board directors, you know, you you need to um, realize that, of course, you know, every owner will, you know, not like the idea about raising maintenance fees. But if that's necessary to keep maintaining your building, you know, taking it in a better shape in the long run, you got to do that because you're elected to do that to make sound business decisions for your whole building, to preserve everybody's investment. And you're not elected just to be popular, you know? You owe fiduciary duties to the um, general membership of the association. We don't want another tragedy like the Surfside condo collapse. And, you know, as we, uh, just after we said this topic with Dennis, uh, it's kind of interesting that um, I'm on this condominium attorney nationwide email list. They're actually circulating, talking about condominium associations filing for bankruptcies, um, you know, in other states. And um, I looked at some of the cases, you know, there's one that really strike me is, uh, you know, that could happen is like one condo project took on a loan, uh, 8 million for a repair project. Uh, you know, they just kick the can down the road, never want to raise their maintenance fees and to a point that they have to do it and they don't have the funds in their reserves. What they have to do is, you know, borrow. But this is an eight million loan. And then on top of that, 
uh, they had an arbitration, you know, where they, they rolled the dice, they went for the arbitration and got an arbitration award against them for $1.25 million, which is unfortunately not covered by insurance. And that's like the last straw, uh, you know, they had to file for bankruptcy. So in this kind of economy, everybody's like, you know, worried about the uncertainties. We don't know if there's going to be another potential recession upcoming to us. We really need to buckle up, be prepared, uh, you know, for the fiscal health of the association. We need to do what we need to do. Thank you so much, Dennis. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, do we have time for one more thing? Uh, go ahead. I think we got that yeah, reminder, but we should <laughs> we'll add go anyway, so. Yes, yes. <laughs> Yeah, well, just real quickly, I, I ran some numbers on, say, a $3 million project, because there's a lot of, say, repiping projects like that. But a lot of people, you know, get scared from that first number when they hear this $3 million and how do we afford it? Well, in, in these types of projects, nobody pays anything except, the, uh, you know, to begin with. Because what will happen is through the first basically 12 months, 18 months of, of what project, once you get started, you're just paying the the uh, designers and maybe the construction management people, and usually people can afford that out of their cash reserves. So there's no loan required for that. You know, once construction starts, um, that's when the the association start paying a little bit of an interest. You know, during they just pay interest on the the amount borrowed during construction. If it's five hundred the first month, then they're paying um, five hundred interest on 500 in the second month is another 500 so you say maybe you're paying uh, uh you know interest on say uh, a million or something like that so there's a so running the numbers it it amounts to um it most of these projects will take at least two years to do in that two-year period if the association has the funds to just pay the designers and the management company and pay the interest on the loan, that, that out-of-pocket money is only $570. So at, they say the start of the third year, that's when the project has been completed and the permanent financing is put in place. And on a $3 million loan, the monthly payment per unit, say if the, this building is 100 units in this particular building, which there are many of those, that payment's $203 a month. So you can you can see where people can get very afraid of a three million dollar number, but when it comes down to it, you know somebody boils it back down to you could live in this building for the next three years. Say your cash outlay might be in the range of three thousand dollars for the next three years on this project. So that gives you three years of time to figure out things, whether it's going to get better, or worse, that type of thing. And so people need to really get this thing boiled down to what is it going to cost me personally so then they can properly make the decision because everybody likes to talk about i have a three million dollar project that I, I gotta see. pay for <laughs> you know, okay I, our time is up thank <laughs> you so much dennis thank you appreciate okay. all right thank take you. care thank you now Thank you so much for watching Think Tech Hawaii. If you like what we do, please like us and click the subscribe button on YouTube and the follow button on Vimeo. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and donate to us at thinktechhawaii.com. Mahalo.